Welcome to episode 267 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Sheen. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So today we're going to, I don't know, I don't know if this is going to be a mini-series or what. I think we had at least one, but maybe a few requests for um, some Mars uh, episodes, or at least one Mars episode now, and maybe some in the in the future shane um, i'm not sure what are your thoughts on going in that direction i like it a lot there's a lot to observe <laughs> on mars you know we're reaching a, a good opposition uh very favorable for northern hemisphere observers because it'll be fairly mm-hmm. high in the sky um so yeah i think it's a great topic right now yeah so i kind of broke it down this way so we had at least one listener i think there's been a few people that have uh, kind of alluded to this and uh, and I think what we'll do is um, talk about our first observations and then we'll talk uh, a little bit about um, you know what what you can use to actually take a look at Mars and then uh, what you can actually see because we'll kind of we'll kind of hint at what you can see for a little while and then we'll kind of dig into it but it might make a little bit more sense if we uh if we start there so Shane, i'm gonna start just just put you on the spot i'm gonna ask you uh, if you remember your first uh, view of mars through your own telescope like your own like you've now got a telescope i think you had uh, uh an eight inch dobsonian like i did and and uh, don't know if you looked at it through that or the 12 inch but w- what's your own first experience uh, hunting down and observing mars uh, on your own well uh things lined up uh, perfectly for me. And it was not by design. It was just pure dumb luck on my part, <laughs> but I had made the decision to get a, you know, my first like proper telescope, which was the eight inch Skywatcher, uh, Dobsonian. And I bought that in 2003 and, mm-hmm. uh, was super excited, used it a lot. And the dumb luck part of this is in 2004 was the closest approach or closest opposition for Mars, uh, like in our lifetime. Oh, I think, um, wasn't that 2003 or me? Yeah. Maybe that was three. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I thought it was Oh four, but maybe not. But, uh, yeah, I always get confused at these dates as, as well, but yeah, yeah. It was August of, I'm just looking up here just to confirm, but yeah, it yeah was August yeah. of, of 2003. Yeah. It was okay. only uh, 35 million miles. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what I remember about my first observations, uh, and, and I'm going to start with just not, without the telescope. Um, it was amazing how bright and red Mars was that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and really I think what it was for me is I just never had really paid much attention to the planets in the sky prior to becoming serious about astronomy, mm-hmm. uh, with my own telescope. So all of a sudden I was looking at it every night visually and, uh, at that time I was uh, commuting, uh, for my work. So I would, I had about a, uh, 45 minute drive, uh, to, to, and from, you know, each way. And, uh, it was shift work. So sometimes I was coming home at night and I, you know, for that 45 minutes, it, you know, it was just such a bright beacon in the sky. It was uh, incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, with that being said, I had multiple observations with my eight inch Dobsonian and I think I was using primarily like Mead series 4,000 plossils back then and um, was really amazed again at the color. Um, just just like you, you would see in photos, that orangey, rusty, you know, almost brownish tone there. 
Um, that came through in spades. Um, and then the other thing that blew my mind was just the polar caps, like how apparent they were and mm-hmm. just couldn't miss them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing was just like the continual, um, like the, the changing of the surface features as Mars would rotate, you know, kind of night after night after night, it's slowly shifting what you're seeing. And, and, um, it was just super cool to see all of those surface details and, and mm-hmm. then just learning, like, what am I looking at? You know, <laughs> go into the planetarium software and trying to, to learn all of the various, uh, you know, seas and all of that kind of stuff that, uh, were visible through the eight inch. So it, it was, uh, it's still quite memorable. Um, what I will say is, is that my observing skills have evolved or improved since then. And, um, I, I think I'm seeing, well, I know I'm seeing a lot more detail now, um, than I did then, but, you know, I think a lot of it is cause I'm just far more patient when I'm looking, uh, through the telescope now. And, and then I wouldn't spend an entire night looking at just Mars, you know, I'd probably mm-hmm. spend 10 or 15 minutes and then look at other stuff. And now, like, I really value these planetary seasons, especially when it's favorable oppositions. And, um, during those times, like I will go out for a couple of hours and just look at one planet, you know, Mars or Jupiter, whatever it might be, and, uh, just drink in the detail. Mm -hmm. So how about you, your first memories of viewing Mars? Yeah. So, uh, somewhat similar to you, I, I ordered my first uh, telescope, which was also an eight inch Dobsonian back in 1997. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never forget the call from my rather surprised mother who knew that I had ordered a telescope and was having it sent home while I was away at university. And uh, my mother has a pretty good sense of humor. So she called me up and said, the coffin you ordered is finally here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair description. <laughs> and then she was slightly irritated that I had ordered such a large thing and had it sent to uh, their home. And uh <laughs> Maybe I ought to be looking for my own home by this point in time. So um, I got to admit, though, that eight-inch Dobsonian, and this is not a reflection (laughs) on the Dobsonian design or anything, um, but my eight-inch Dobsonian was an absolute dog. It was uh, a terrible telescope, but I I Mm -hmm. used it until it disintegrated. Um, Let's see. But that telescope arrived, and it just kind of synced up. I... I ended up uh, getting back to their place, which is like a good hour or so away. And I set that up uh, pretty much uh, on the March 20th, uh, 1997 uh, opposition night for Mars. And uh, it was the only thing that I could see uh, from the driveway. It was uh, one of those situations where, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of cloud and broken cloud and high moving cloud. It was pretty windy. There's actually some snow squalls coming through. But, uh, you know, if you live in Nova Scotia, these are fairly good uh, March conditions, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I was able to kind of, oh, there's a hole and get it on Mars and then look in and then watch while the cloud passed. And then, oh, now we can see it. And yeah, low power, like around uh, 38 or 40 power, you could see it was around disk. And then at 120, I could start to see some of the uh, white smears on the top and, and bottom. And then uh, with some patience uh, and and a good clear uh, opening, um, I, I saw a dark area. I figured this was uh, the Mariner Valley, but uh, in actuality, it was the Certus Major, of course, because Mariner Valley is uh, much more difficult to see. I've, 
I've only had uh, sort of one bit of a sighting of that. Um, and uh, yeah, so that spring, you know, was also the spring of Comet Hill Bop. So Hill Bop kind of stole the show a little bit, but mm. I spent uh, most of my first evenings out under the sky with my own telescope, uh, hopping back and forth from Comet Hill Bop to Mars. And uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. But, uh, you know, I, I scarcely saw more than those polar caps and, uh, and probably really maybe their hoods, I don't know. But, uh, and then I saw the odd um, dark marking. And uh, yeah, so do you, did you get any good sights um, of any dark markings when you were first uh, looking through the scope? Well, not, not what I see now. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it's again, just, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that my, my observing ability has evolved or improved over time. And, and mm-hmm. that's just sort of a natural evolution, I think for any amateur observer. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, so I did see some dark features, but like, again, not, not to the degree that I'm seeing it now. Now, I think that part of this is also that uh, I, I, and I experienced this a lot with my big 12 inch light bridge. They just gather so much light that, um, I think I needed to tone it down a little bit, you know, with either, mm-hmm. uh, like a neutral density filter or some kind of filter, you know, just to take mm-hmm. some of that glare and brightness away. Because, um, what I didn't realize at that time was that, that, that can be an issue when you're observing the planets that they collect too much light and yeah. it washes some of that subtle detail away or just doesn't make it quite as distinct. Mm -hmm. So, um, I never did that. I never applied a filter and I, you know, I wished I would have, because I think that would have probably helped a little bit. Yeah. So the Certus Major, this is, uh, one of the more easily seen, uh, features on the surface of Mars. It's a dark pattern and it was first observed by Christian Hugens in 1659. And so, um, it ends up just just being often uh, among the first, if not the first, uh, surface feature that an, that an amateur will pull out. And what it what it kind of looks like, at least to me, Shane, it it kind of looks like what we imagine the continent of Africa with uh, sort of the uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, uh, uh, Yemen, uh, Oman, Syria, and, and Jordan, like that that sort of area, sort of attached on. Like that's kind of kind of in a very general way mm-hmm. um, what that uh, what that feature uh, looks like at, at least uh, to my eye and uh, yeah certainly it really stuck out to me when when I was first observing uh, Mars and I would consider it a pretty big success if I saw that feature and, and the polar caps but uh, uh, other than that really uh, as far as my own personal observations I I didn't have any uh, anything beyond that in that uh, really uh, poorly constructed eight inch Dobsonian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So moving on from there, um, I know I went on and and uh I started observing with with other observers um, you know, uh for the next oppositions. And well, I should say the next opposition I I did observe uh Mars was fairly low, but uh uh around that time, say three or four years later, I started observing uh with people, I, I joined like the local astronomy club, the Halifax RESC Center, and then um, it began looking through other telescopes. But um, I'm not sure what your experience was like that. Did you just kind of continue sort of observing Mars on your own, or did you sort of seek out other observers who uh, who maybe had uh, different instruments uh, pointed at the red planet? 
You know, at that time, uh, I had joined the local RASC uh, astronomy club here in Regina, but I had not attended any of the um, uh, like observing events. So mm-hmm. at that, when during that opposition, it was a hundred percent through my eight inch. Uh, Dobsonian, yeah, did not, did not really experience anything else. Um, now, as years progressed, the, you know, I did observe a lot more with the club, and it was basically one of two scopes that you would look through. Either it was like a eight to twelve inch, actually, and occasionally a twenty inch uh, reflector, or it was a Cassegrain. There's mm-hmm. nobody using refractors. Uh, nobody at that time that I recall using Maxudovs, so it was pretty limited. Um, mm-hmm. I do remember, uh, a couple years later, after I bought my eight inch Dubsonian, I added an 80 millimeter William optic, uh, apochromat to my collection mm-hmm. and I didn't use it a lot, but then one night, uh, because my 12 inch, uh, or yeah, I think it was my 12 inch at that time, uh, reflector was kind of broken. Uh, I was using the 80 millimeter to look at Jupiter and it mm-hmm. really shocked me how much I could see. Uh, mm-hmm. in terms of planetary detail, like really shocked me. I didn't think it was even possible. And then it wasn't long after that you moved here and yeah. you, you know, you had your 125 millimeter Borg refractor or Pachromat, and you would share observing notes with the club about what you were seeing on Jupiter. And it honestly yeah. blew my mind. I'm like, how is this guy seeing that level of detail? <laughs> like my, my eight inch daub should blow that thing away. And it doesn't like, I don't see that. And yeah. And then you and I started to observe together and, and, uh, you know, I really started to appreciate how good a a little refractor can be on the planets. Yeah. Yeah. I always think about the time and I'm, I'm not ribbing you or anything. It just, it is kind of the experience where, uh, we had, we had gone out, I'd found this, this nice little, um, pull off on a, on a back grid road. It was a a nice little dark spot, not too far from the city, but it was good and dark. Mm -hmm. And I remember we went out and, and you had your 12 and a half inch daub and you were setting up. And I was like, observe, I was on like third or fourth object and you were still setting up and you, you made a comment. You're like, you've been observing for half an hour and I'm just ready to go. Kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. By the I time you build night, it yeah. and collimate it. Yeah. All of that stuff. Yeah. 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 And you were like, what is like, I think I'm getting convinced on the refractors that night was, I think your, uh, your summary report. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That was another big factor too, for sure. Yeah. But that's, that is one of the things is to get out with other people. And, um, I always feel like I wish I had, you know, uh, gone out with other people sooner, even though it was just like uh, three or four years, but I started, I think I started going and observing with people just after the next opposition. And, uh, I was able to get some pretty good views. Like the club had a 17 and a half inch, um, reflector that they would stop down to 14 inches because it had turned down edge. And, uh, there was like a few Takahashi's and astrophysics refractors around. And, um, some people had uh, just taken like, you know, what you think of as like a pretty standard on the surface of it, uh, eight inch, uh, reflector or an eight inch McCass grain. And, uh, and they had just tweaked the heck out of them. So there was, uh, one person actually referred to him, uh, in, in the previous episode of Mike Gatto. He's a graphic uh, artist and he either he had built a scope or he had gotten an eight inch F7 Zambuto mirror and built this a Dobsonian. So on the surface, it just looked like your standard Dobsonian. But then when you look through it, you were like, what is this? Like, how did he stuff a eight inch refractor inside this? I mean, it's it really had refractor like views and, and it's the telescope that, that he uses today. Um, 
and then another club member um, was really into astro imaging and, um, you know, had really tweaked out his Schmidt-Cassegrain and, and just uh, we'd have phenomenal uh, views of, of the planets through that. Um, and then, uh, you know, one of the things I guess to mention is that, uh, you know, you see Mars is a particularly demanding target. And uh, there's this secondary color that some refractors will have and some eyepieces will have. And uh, because Mars is red or reddish, if that telescope isn't corrected well for red, um, it tends to kind of obliterate the details. Or even if um, the eyepiece has a little bit of red in that, it, uh, I can find it frustrating. So, so Shane, kind of like you, I had the eight-inch daub and then I had bought a... I had a STA, but mm-hmm. I eventually for the 2003 opposition had bought um, a really nice William Optics Megres 80. Actually, I got one and it had spherical aberrations, sent it back and got another one. It's the story of my life. I've sent, I should have or or did send back every telescope I've ever bought except for the TAC DC. Um, and, uh, and that telescope was okay, but it was great on deep sky wide field, but... Uh, on Mars, it really struggled. I remember getting up in the mornings and like, I, like I'm doing now, this the way I've always observed and getting that telescope on Mars, running it at, uh, you know, I had about 600 millimeter focal length. So I was using like 120 to like 140 power to, you know, in that range should give you a fairly decent view of Mars. And uh, just not being able to like get the crispness that I had seen through um, other people's tacks and astrophysics and tweak reflectors and Schmidt Cassegrains and stuff like that. And being kind of uh, frustrated um, about the, uh, about the whole experience, because I, I knew at that time um, what a telescope could do after, after joining um, the RESC center and, and looking through uh those telescopes. And I'm really trying to give the impression that it's not getting like a specific expensive refractor or, or certain type of telescope, because those are all kind of the, the gamut of refractor, reflector, Schmidt-Cassegrain compound telescope. And each of those was showing better images um, than what I was getting. And, and like, I wasn't even getting close to what they were getting through those, uh, through those telescopes. So, you know, it, it was a bit of a learning experience there. And that's when I learned that, you know, if, if you do want to get those sort of images, you either a have to get a telescope and really tweak it um, by a pretty expensive telescope, or, you know, you can sort of build your own, like the person who bought the uh, eight inch F seven mirror, which there's lots of great, you know, you can go on any of the Astromart or any of the other um, buying cell sites and find like a Zambudo mirror in the, you know, seven to 10 inch range, you, you often see those go through where people had bought it as a project and it just goes through and nobody does anything. So I remember this person who had bought that uh, essentially perfect mirror had, had got it for a song or a few hundred bucks or something like that. And then it was one of the best telescopes that I've ever, ever looked through. So I don't want to give people the impression that you need to spend, you know, a mountain of money to mm-hmm. get these uh, sort of images. Same thing with Schmidt-Cassegrain is pretty common, um, fair wouldn't you say like they're pretty common instruments to see around the field oh yeah i you know i think that that's maybe the most common uh i see them the most uh, maybe or it'd be pretty close to a dobsonian but uh, i see a lot of cassegrains for sure Mm -hmm. yeah and they can be tweaked out to uh to perform as well but they for the most part they just need to be properly aligned 
maybe have to do something with the focuser to um, some of them have like what's called mirror flop to, to account for that. Um, you know, using um, good eyepieces, having a good uh, dew shield, light baffle, um, you know, all, all kinds of stuff like that can be, uh, can be done. But, you know, I, I found that on the best nights um, that I'm able to uh, get around three, mid 300 powers using either my uh, four inch Takahashi or five inch um, Pentax. And, uh, you know, it, it is, it is possible to actually watch, you know, clouds drifting across the deserts. Um, and I kind of feel like automatic tracking on a mount, uh, for, for those type of telescopes right. anyway, is, is essential. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is just like a real Coles notes version of what I'm using, but, uh, right now. And, and for the longest time, I've, I really like the Pentax XWI pieces cause they're comfortable and, allow for long sessions and good sketching at the eyepiece. And then for filters, I really like the Mars filter from Celestron. I know Orion has one and I use the Bader contrast booster for some of the clouds. And um, yeah, those, those have some blue characteristics that can help reveal some of the darker surface features. Um, But, you know, there's, there's some other things as well, like, uh, you know, Shane, I think you're using, uh, or at least you own the Vernon Scope salmon filter. Is that for seeing salmon on Mars or? <laughs> yeah coho in particular um yeah there's um i think it's some, like a magenta tone i forget the rat mm. number on it like it's like a 30 or something, something like that like it. it's got a weird number yeah 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 and uh vernon scope to my knowledge is the only one that sells that particular color yeah um, and if you wait until a mars opposition sometimes they're hard to find because they yeah. sell out <laughs> Um, yeah. but the other weird thing too, so Vernon scope filters are made for Brandon eyepieces, um, mm-hmm. and the threading on those eyepieces is not standard compared to every other eyepiece and inch and a quarter filters. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is you have to buy a different, and they sell this too. So you, you'd order the magenta filter, uh, and then you would order, uh, this other like filter ring and you just remount the, the filter in the new ring. And then it works in your standard inch and a quarter eyepieces. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a nice filter. Like, you know, I think, what is it? Number 21 or something like that is like an orange. Okay. Uh, this, this one's a little more subtle. Like it's not mm-hmm. quite as aggressive as all of the other ready orange filters that are more common out there. Yeah. And, um, it seems to match the natural tone of Mars, uh, a lot better. So it yeah. doesn't really introduce false color and it does seem to bring out the darker regions a little bit better in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, substantially better, mm, probably not, but, uh, you know, it's there. Um, now, you know, I really don't use a lot of filters when I'm observing. Uh, so that might be another caveat here is, you know, I probably should actually put in a little more time using it to see how much I love it or don't love it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I agree with everything you're saying here. You know, comfort is, is probably one of the biggest things I think for, uh, observing the planets in particular comfort in general, while observing Mm -hmm. is important, but if you Mm -hmm. really want to see a lot of planetary detail, this is paramount. So number one, like you said, probably, a, a like a tracking mount is really important so that you don't mm-hmm. have to continually nudge. And then you can also use higher powers and it's just easier. It's more comfortable. The mm-hmm. chair, super important, uh, to me anyway. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even try doing planetary observing without a chair, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then for me, the last aspect of this is the bino viewer. Now I just find that such a comfortable way to observe. And there's been many times where I just like the, the summation factor of both your, of your eyes working, it almost seems to do like a little bit of, um, uh, like cancellation of bad seeing, I think, and I have no science to prove this other than there's nights where I just use one eye and the seeing just isn't that great, or I'm not mm -hmm. seeing as much detail as I'm hoping for. And then I use both eyes and it's like, I'm kind of just dropping some of those bad frames you know, mm -hmm. that, yeah. that aren't great. And I'm, you know, the, the, yeah. I, I feel like I can see more. So, um, yeah. but anyway, whatever, whatever your approach is, I, I think Basing it in comfort is one of the best things to help see more detail, whether it's Mars or any of the other planets. Yeah. And the one thing that I find super helpful is uh, having a really good dedicated observing chair. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, that's, I think the number one thing that um, people overlook, like, mm -hmm. um, you know, Jim, who's the local listener, who's donated a book for the, um, for, for the pun giveaway or joke giveaway, however you want to interpret it. Um, but you know, he was out here and, and he was talking about, you know, maybe getting different eye pieces of the like get a chair, man, like, like, like get a really good observing chair. And, and I kind of took mine and sort of put it at his telescope. It wasn't a great night or anything, but I'm like, just sit in the chair and observe for a bit. And just, you know, just experience that. Um, it, it's just one of those things that I think people, it just seems like a boring, like getting a chair seems like the most boring uh, telescope accessory, you know, uh, you're getting a wide field eyepiece. That's really exciting. All the stuff you're going to see through it and you get a new tripod or a mount. It's going to give you good tracking and maybe be much more stable. It's all good. But, uh, in fact, the, uh, the really good observing chair that, that costs perhaps as much as a really good eyepiece, um, is definitely the way to go. I really like, I got this, uh, Burlaback, uh, chair and it's got a padded seat. And the padded seat can just whip off. And what I do with that is I actually bring the seat in with me with my eyepiece case. And then um, I'll be in and out throughout the evening like I was last night. And uh, yeah, I'll just take it out with me. So the seat stays nice and warm. So I put that down. I'm sitting on a relatively warm seat outside. And I've got my eyepieces all there nice and warm. And telescope is all cooled down. And yeah, you can really do a lot of uh, good observing and sketching if you're just comfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think the key characteristic with an observing chair is adjustable height. Like you need to have mm -hmm. the seat exactly. that can go up and down because yeah. uh, the angle of your telescope or where your eye is will vary a lot, uh, particularly yeah. if you're a, a refractor user. So that's the key thing. Uh, you can definitely buy some. Uh, Burlaback makes great chairs. You and I have two different models of Burlaback and they're yep. both fantastic. Uh, you can also make one, uh, which we've talked a little bit about in mm -hmm. the past, uh, probably the most common design it's known as a Denver observers chair. And if Named you do an internet, Den Bob Denver. say that again, Named after Bob Denver, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think so, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't confirm that. So, um, yeah, it, if you just do an internet search on that, you'll find the plans I'm, I'm sure quite easily. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's really just simple wood that, you know, some people might even have in their garage, uh, you know, just as kind of leftovers from another project mm -hmm. and you can, you know, probably within a couple of hours, turn that into a real, real effective observing chair. And I've built one and I still have it. I leave it mm -hmm. just out in my backyard. 
so that when I do observing back there, it's just one less thing that I have to haul out is the chair. I just use that one and it's handy. Um, so yeah, highly recommend that. Yeah. The one thing I find with these Burla back chairs, which uh, I quite like, and I wasn't sure if I would like it or not, because it seems counterintuitive, but an observing chair is very different from another, any other type of chair that you're ever going to sit down in, in which this again seems very strange. Um, but they're slightly tipped forward and it's an ergonomic design for actually sitting um, at an eyepiece. They're, they're designed for this. It's not really a chair that you're going to ever enjoy kind of sitting and kicking back. And although sometimes I, I will do that. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's designed just to be used while, uh, while you're at the eyepiece. Anyway, just thought I'd mention that. So, uh, so Shane, since those uh, early days, um, what, uh, you know, what have you been able to, uh, to discern, um, on Mars? Um, well, gee, a lot of the, uh, I'd have to like reference some of my notes, but, um, you know, we've talked about the caps before both Northern and Southern, uh, mm-hmm. definitely some drifting clouds, mostly at the limb, but definitely have seen that before. And, uh, then a lot of the sort of darker regions, whether it's like uh Certus major, as you mentioned before, and, mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to think if I've seen, I don't think I've seen the shadow of, uh, uh the big volcano there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So kind of the typical stuff, I, I guess for me, um, and what I would like to say too, is, is. Uh, last opposition, I was observing Mars exclusively with my 76 millimeter tack. Mm-hmm. And again, I cannot believe how much detail you can even see in a three inch. Like it was incredible. You and I were exchanging notes an awful lot back then as to what we were seeing in our telescopes. And uh, it was nothing short of amazing. And I think, you know, a number of our early podcasts actually talk, we, we shared our Mars observing yeah. reports there. So if anybody wants to hear them, uh, go back and yeah. listen because, uh, uh, it's pretty neat to to just reflect upon what we were observing two years ago. Do is there like any sort of specific observation out of all those that uh, that kind of sticks out in your mind, or, or just sort of the general experience? No, there was one night. I again, my memory is awful, so I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But I do remember one night we were both out, and the seeing was incredible. And mm-hmm. um, I think I you know, was doing over 250 ish, uh, with a little three inch, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but it was handling it and it was just a fantastic night. I think I was using some super monocentrics, uh, for those observations. And, uh, it was just, it almost was taking on like, uh, like it, I wouldn't say three dimensional view, but it was almost like the planet had some depth to it, you know, that you Mm -hmm. were, it wasn't just like this flat thing, this flat round thing that you were seeing. It was, it was almost like you, you could see some of the curvature, you know, almost of that disc. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. How about you? Well, um, I always like to think about observing Mars and I, like I said, it was the first thing I ever observed and I've observed, I think all of the oppositions, uh, since there may have been one I missed, uh, because I was super busy at work or something, but there's, there's these two faces of, of Mars. And do you kind of know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Like, yep. So there's, it's sort of like the moon in a way, looking at Mars through a telescope is kind of like looking at the moon with your unaided eye or, or it can be because 
what we're seeing there are these large albedo features. Kind of like in a way you're not really seeing the exact surface detail uh, of a specific region or, or geological feature. But what you're seeing is the summation of several features on the surface. Just like when you look at the moon and you see um, one of the large mare with your unaided eye, you're, you're probably seeing a collection of impact basins and perhaps crater chains and then edge craters that are filled with, with lava that just sort of create this feature. And then when you point the telescope at it, of course, you can start to see some of the impacts on the lava and then you can see some of, um, you know, the rim craters and that sort of thing. However, with Mars, <laughs> it's much trickier because mm-hmm. um, really what happens is instead of seeing those very specific surface features, um, what you're doing is, is simply waiting um, for the really good moments of seeing as well as you're waiting for the close approaches to sort of line up with really good sky conditions in order to start perhaps discerning um, more specific uh, surface details. So some of the things that people are going to see when they first start observing Mars are the large dark patches like Hugens observed in 1659, the Certus Major, and the bright polar caps. Although one of the things that people do need to keep in mind about the polar caps is um, sometimes they are visible and sometimes they are not. Uh, even though you might be seeing brightness in the region, you might not be seeing a polar cap. What you're actually seeing is the sublimation of the cap. So the sublimation is when the caps are going through not quite a melting process exactly, but they give off their material into the atmosphere and this can form clouds. And that's one of the first clouds that people can observe on Mars. If you can look at the polar regions and start asking yourself questions. Am I seeing a polar cap? Or is this a very straight line across um, the disk of the planet? If it's a straight line across the disk of the planet, then what you're actually very likely looking at is um, a cloud hood over that pole. And the cloud hoods are much larger than the polar caps themselves. You can discern uh, quite a bit of difference. So Shane, I, I had sent that sketch um, or I put it in the notes and I think I sent it to you. I wonder if that could be maybe tweeted out or something so that people can kind of see, because the one thing that came out well in my sketch and there's stuff that did not come out well in my sketch is that we have a South polar hood displaying well, at least uh, we did on the 10th of October and, uh, and the North polar cap was showing through a bit of a bit of cloud, but you could actually discern uh, the polar cap. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a pretty cool observation, and I'll definitely tweet that out. The other thing people are going to notice are orange dust storms. These are actually pretty mm. easy to see, and there there has been some regional uh, sort of localized dust storms. Sometimes, uh, unfortunately, we get a full planet dust storm. Um, it does, I'm not sure if that's going to happen this time or not. Um, the jury's still out, but you can have a regional dust storm and those can be quite easy to see because they appear bright orange and they tend to cut into um, some of the other areas. And with long hours at the eyepiece, um, you can start to discern haze along the rim of the planet, sort of along that daylit edge. And then um, sometimes on the rim of the polar caps, if the polar cap is visible, sometimes you can see a bit of haze there as well. 
And then sometimes, uh, you know, if you get good at observing whether it's a polar cap or a polar hood, then you can actually um, really start to be able to learn how to pick out some of the clouds that are going across the surface. Um, and those clouds are very cool to see. I've mostly seen them in, I guess, like the northern uh, temperate zone is, is what I call it, sort of about halfway between the equator and the uh, North Pole. Um, I've, I have been able to watch and show other people as well. I've shown people in my astronomy class clouds going on the surface of Mars, as well as uh, my wife has seen them. And, uh, and last year, or I should say the year before, we had the last Mars opposition. Um, I texted Mike and said that I was watching clouds and I was using 350 power on Mars. And he drove over and, and took a look and we, we watched a set of clouds uh, go across the surface of Mars. He was just uh, completely astounded that this was even possible to, to see them with that much detail, kind of like if you were looking at a radar image of North America and you could see like a large uh, cloud deck sort of slowly making its way across the surface. And uh, you can definitely uh, see these things. Some of the other features, uh, not sure. Have you ever looked at like the Hellas region, which I think is just above uh, Sirtis Major? Yes. Yeah, I definitely have. And it can take on, it can have a bit of a white appearance. Sometimes clouds can collect in it. Sometimes frost can collect in it. You can see the differences mm -hmm. there. You referenced the uh, the volcanoes of the Tharsis Bulge, which is a 3.7 billion year old um, region. It's a bit of an upland. It's the welling of uh, the volcanic region on Mars. Sometimes these can kind of collect sort of like, I think they're like W-shaped clouds. And then as well, sometimes they can cast a bit of a shadow. It can sort of be a, a darkening of the area. I was able to pick that up uh, on the 10th and then uh, maybe a bit of a cloud there as well. I should have put a question mark. I put a white circle. I just should have put a question mark. I'm not sure what, what I was looking at there exactly. That's sort of a downfall of, of that process. Some of the things that people have noticed, I've never seen this before. I, I and, and I think it's because this can only happen during some oppositions. The uh, angle between the Earth, Sun, and Mars needs to be just right. But some people have witnessed um, only seconds long, uh, but bright flashes in uh, in high atmospheric from high atmospheric ice crystals over certain areas. There's an article in the recent Sky and Telescope magazine. It's reading an article on Sky at Night's uh, website about this. Um, I have not seen those bright flashes yet, but apparently this opposition, although it's not one of the best, um, is going to be uh, good for for that. Have you ever seen any of those bright flashes? I never have. No, I don't. No, I, I that doesn't stand out to me at all. I don't believe I've seen that. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. So uh, how do you get, so what would be a good way to get started observing uh, Martian? Well, um, I think you start right now, if you can, um, you know, find out where it is in your sky, uh, make sure you have no obstructions in the way. And the best thing in my mind to do with Mars is just to start early and finish late, you know, so mm -hmm. start observing now continue to observe it as much as you can leading up to opposition. Um, mm -hmm. Just because you're going to improve uh, again, kind of your ability to see more detail just with the repetition, but also as it grows in size, as it gets closer to us mm -hmm. um, and then following opposition, you keep going, right. You know, it's going to start to get smaller every night, but there's still a lot of great observing that can happen there. 
mm-hmm. you're really going to see a lot of different views of the planet this way. Um, so I highly recommend that. And um, basically, you know, if you use whatever telescope you like using, they're they are all great. You know, they are all going to show you Mars. Um, you know, my preference definitely is with a refractor, but you know, Newtonians, Cassegrains, they all work great. So, you know, just get out there and, and start observing really. Yeah. So the Mars opposition is going to be December 8th, uh, at least for us anyway, I know it might vary by a day, depending on where you are on this planet. And, uh, for those of us in North America, October, November are probably going to be our most comfortable, uh, times to observe. So, um, right now. Mars doesn't really get high until um, after midnight, really by a couple hours anyway. And Mars rotates uh, every 24.6 hours. I think it's like 24 hours and 38 uh, minutes, give or take. And uh, that is versus the Earth's 23.9 hours. So this means that an object you observe one night will move a little each night uh, such that the same area will appear to complete one rotation for you 41 nights later. So it takes about 41 nights for for it to appear to do one rotation, watching it at the same moment every night. So currently Mars is is getting pretty high after midnight. And the best time probably right now to observe is getting close to to like that dawn time around 4 to 5 a.m. is probably best right now, at least for us. And um, let's see, different areas are going to see different faces of Mars at sort of the same time. So if I get up at 4 a.m. and I'm observing it um, here in Saskatchewan, um, if Larry, who's over in Japan and, and has written us some, some really great observing emails, uh, if he gets up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, Mars is going to have rotated by the time he's doing his observations, so he'll have a slightly different view. And if he comes back a day later, he's going to see that same view um, have, uh, that's rotated on Mars by Mars's rotation of about 38 minutes or so. Uh, same for me, but we're going to have these, these out-of-phase um, rotations. So one thing to do is just kind of, you can track your time in universal time and kind of, if you're looking at features, you can, uh, you can follow that along by using some, some of the resources. One of the best that, that I have open when I'm doing my Mars observing is uh, the Sky and Telescope Mars Profiler. And it works in, uh, in universal time and it's, it's got a fairly decent map of Mars and uh, the Observer's Handbook 2022 has a good section there in around like page uh, 208 or 210. And then there's a Mars map in there as well. Sky at Night has a great uh, resource up. I think they just updated it um, for this opposition. Looks very similar to the last one, but it's excellent. It's a nice long online, you know, usually like online articles, Shane, like you know this well, like often they're like two or three sort of, you know, paragraphs and you know, there's not a lot of content there, but the Sky Night folks have really done a pretty good job, I think, of making a nice uh, little, um, almost like a observer's guide to Mars on their webpage. People should check that out. And uh, ALPO, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, uh, is a pretty good uh, resource uh, as well for uh, for all things Martian. So, you know, do you have any any uh, advice on how to get started, Shane, or, or any resources that you might be able to recommend? Um, there's, um, 
oh, I think Sky and Telescope so, uh, cells are used to, I should have looked this up, but uh, like just a, it's a map of the, of the surface features of Mars and uh, it gives a whole bunch of tips to observe um, okay. and uh, just helps you identify, you know, what you might be looking at too. It's super helpful. I can't remember. It's either Sky or Telescope or, or, or Orion. I think that makes oh, okay. it and it's laminated. It's kind of meant for the field that folds up. Okay. It's, it's a really nice resource. Yeah, I do. I do kind of struggle a bit with many of the maps because, like I said, there's these two faces of Mars. So it is a little bit. It's tricky because oftentimes you can watch um, like a region. Um, I, I forget what region is off the top. I feel like it's Sinusabius or something like that. Um, but then um, that's the albedo feature. But then just below um, what you're getting is the summation of the surface details is just an albedo feature is um, the Mariner Valley. And so, you know, it, it can be difficult to try to correlate those surface details um, through the albedo features. I, I think this is fairly technical and maybe it would deserve its own podcast in itself, but people should just kind of be aware like that there's these sort of two sides of Mars. When you're first observing Mars, you're pretty much going to be looking at these albedo features. But then for those that are, um, you know, working on, you know, hours long observations on Mars, like I really enjoy, then you may be able to, to really dig in and, and wait out those, uh, those good moments in, in order to maybe see like a surface detail, like a shadow of uh, one of the Tharsis bulge volcanoes, um, or, or something like the Mariner Valley, or um, uh, Chasm, I think it's called Chasm Borealis up there in the, uh, in the northern polar cap. Um, but there are sort of sub sub albedo features. Um, and it is sort of this, this difficult thing because often like I have a giant map of uh, from the USGS of the actual, it's a geological map of Mars. And, uh, and then of course there's the albedo maps that for the most part are what we use at, at the telescope. It's like this sort of weird uh, yin and yang thing. And maybe I should mention this one thing we, we didn't mention Shane is that, one of the uh, great uh, Mars explorers actually uh, was from, uh, lived in Regina towards the end of his life. Eh? It's kind of a funny twist of fate. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a few astronomical connections to our location here. Um, kind of interesting. Yeah. So Jack Mollard, um, I believe he, he was, um, ended up doing some instruction, like as a, as a bit of a professor at the university, uh, the Regina University, University of Regina, where I work. Um, but anyway, before I worked there, um, he was, uh, he ran his own uh, geological survey company and uh, was a geologist of, of uh, the highest order. And uh, he was one of the first people to use satellite imagery in order to um, determine uh, what was happening on the surface of our planet. And because of this early expertise in, in that field, NASA had contacted him and he trained um, and helped to select the landing sites for many of the first uh, Mars missions. And uh, at one point in time, he had reached out um, to me because we we're going to work on some uh, guest speakers that, that he was going to bring up from uh, NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab. And I had many lunches with, with Jack and he gifted me um, some of those early 
um, non, uh, you know, they weren't really released uh, images at the time of Mars and what some of the very early satellites um, had taken and his analysis of them in order to determine um, where they were going to put like the Vikings down and, and uh, you know, th those kind of early days. So it was, it was kind of neat to be able to sit and kind of pepper him with questions. And then he brought up uh, Dr. Jim Rice, who, who ended up speaking at the center and, and it was pretty cool to be able to go out and, you know, have a couple of beers with him, super friendly guy. And, uh, you know, really uh, what, a, what a treat for, um, you know, really uh, a Mars geek like myself to actually be able to, to meet some of these uh, people that really know, they really know these Martian details pretty well and, and able to uh, kind of provide some of the background on, on, you know, what you're seeing and what can be seen. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's a great, uh, great summary of that for sure. Yeah. Cool. So if you were going to give somebody a piece of advice on getting started, Shane, what would be um, that one piece of advice people should take away? They should buy a really expensive, fancy refractor, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's just get out there and look at it. Uh, again, yeah. I think observe it as much as you can from now until opposition for sure. And then, like I say, go beyond that too. But um, Mars is definitely something that just, uh, it's like a relationship, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of get out of it, what you put into it. And, um, I, if you're just going to look at Mars in opposition, I think you're kind of shortchanging yourself on this yeah. one really should, uh, like I say, just keep observing it. And then when it gets to opposition, uh, I think you'll really be rewarded with, uh, some outstanding views. And I think you're going to end up seeing more detail that way. And in my opinion, it's just the best way to do it. And for those that are focusing on Shane mentioned that uh, observing Mars is like relationship. I will point out that Mars is the God of war. Right, okay. <laughs> so with that, I'll just remind people that we do have a contest uh, on the go right now. We've got uh, a pun, or maybe we should just call it a joke. Kind of you get an astronomy joke. It's all good. Um, we're looking for people to submit their astronomy puns or astronomy jokes and uh, we're giving away a copy of Sue French's Deep Sky uh, Wonders, um, which was gifted to us by uh, local listener Jim. So you can send in your um, astronomy puns or astronomy jokes to actualastronomy at gmail.com. And you can always send us your own observations, particularly of Mars. We'd love to hear them or read them. And then uh, please subscribe in your podcatching software. Thanks again, Shane. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. To Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.